Okay, welcome to another episode of the Regenerative Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Max Colhane, and today I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Tucker Goodrich, whom I consider to be one of the world leaders in understanding the harms of seed oils on human health. Tucker is a risk analyst and was completely self-taught, but went down the seed hole, a rabbit hole, after having his own health issues, uh, and which stimulated his, his journey into this topic. From my point of view, humans evolved eating saturated animal fats and cholesterol, which is the animal uh, sterol that were used to build our cell, mem- cell membranes and uh, a range of steroid hormones and other functions. That's what I believe based on the the best uh, scientific evidence. We did not evolve with a high amount of polyunsaturated omega-6 seed oils, which are what most people are consuming most of the time in today's uh, Western world in terms of, of their fat source. So understanding exactly the harms of these oils is a little bit complex, and we go into it in depth with Tucker. But basically, it's all about this compound called linoleic acid, which is the chief fatty acid that we find in oils like sunflower, vegetable, canola, safar, soy, corn, grapeseed, uh, and the like. Linoleic acid particularly breaks down into a range of carcinogenic and frankly toxic substances that are promoting chronic disease and autoimmunity, cancer, metabolic disease, obesity, uh, and ischemic heart disease. So we go into the weeds a little bit, but it's very important to understand. And I think that once you take multiple lines of evidence, which go include animal evidence, which include human trials, which include uh, um, in individual patient experiences, the, the weight and the totality of that evidence is overwhelming, in, in my opinion. So uh, please enjoy this episode with Tucker. And if you're re- enjoying the content, then it would uh, much be appreciated if you could uh, subscribe, follow, leave a podcast review, and um, send the, the podcast to your friends. So thank you very much and enjoy this podcast with Tucker. So Tucker, thanks for coming on and, and please give us a little bit of a background about yourself. Max, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Um, my background, my professional background, uh, I started on Wall Street as a stockbroker and wound up getting sucked into the technology side of the business because I was good at figuring out why things were broken and how to fix them. Um, so I can call myself an engineer, um, but I'm largely self-taught and I went from doing it in my spare time while I was doing, you know, other Wall Streety tasks like trading to becoming the CTO of a multi of a large um, on Wall Street where I had a staff of 20 odd people, some of whom had computer science degrees and systems that uh, monitored trillions of dollars in assets. So I'm good at educating myself and I have to be my confidence in my ability to come to correct conclusions because I was doing it professionally for years, basically with a gun to my head. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. And your story of how you arrived at this position of investigating the harms of seed oils, particularly um, like many people, you were trying to live a healthy lifestyle. You're trying to ha- have a healthy diet but there was some dietary component that was 
I guess, uh, throwing a spanner in the works? Yeah, I never had any interest in diet. Um, I'd watched my mother go through the yo-yo diet known as Weight Watchers for years and thought it was all kind of kooky and just figured out that if you stuck to the dietary guidelines, you'd probably do okay. And then in my late 30s, I started getting, uh, well, as I found out, but in my late 30s, I started getting really sick and had a number of hospitalizations um, for things that in hindsight, I realized were diet related. And finally, through a little bit of serendipity, I started experimenting with my own diet and was able to achieve remission of 16 years of irritable bowel syndrome in a couple of days. Well, that got my attention pretty quick. And I started doing, you know, trial and error, right? Um, trial and error is basically what being a scientist is all about. It's doing experiments in that case, largely on myself and then on family members and colleagues who, you know, as I started learning more and more, I started giving people recommendations and would see what happened when they followed them. And, you know, so I just, it works. Uh, science works and the things that I was learning about a healthy diet worked. Um, a colleague of mine had been a, you know, diabetic for decades and I was able to help him largely put his diabetes in to remission over the course of a couple of years and get him back to his, you know, guy in his late fifties, I was able to get him back to his high school weight. And so the, the crux of, I guess, my, at my thesis and your thesis is that the, a major constituent in the human diet, uh, particularly for the last 50 years is making people sick. And that is particularly the introduction of seed oils or refined oils made from the seeds of plants like rapeseed, which is canola, um, of uh, grape, of sunflower, safflower, cottonseed, all these oils, which are, I guess, rich in a, a compound called linoleic acid, basically yep. came into the food supply from the 1970s onwards. Uh, and in, it's our opinion that they're making people sick. So to talk to a that a little bit. Well, it was, they came into the food supply earlier than that. And the timing is important because it corresponds with the beginning of the various different uh, chronic diseases that we're all now beset with. Um, so linoleic, linoleic acid is the primary fat in most of these seed oils. Um, it is an omega-6 fat, which has which term has to do with the structure of the fat compared to other fats. We won't, don't need to really get into what that means. Um, it's important because it is very susceptible to oxidative damage. Um, and when it becomes damaged oxidatively, and this is true of most fats, by the way, um, it becomes toxic. The difference between linoleic acid and most other fats is a, it's more susceptible to becoming toxic and the compounds it turns into are among the most toxic compounds that are produced from oxidized fats. Um, that and the fact that it has gone from being a tiny portion 
of the diet of a healthy human to a huge portion of the diet of the sick society that we're in now makes it very notable. Linoleic acid, we find in seed oils, is it is predominantly or, or con, a constituent of these oils that is not in uh, oils such as avocado oil, such as olive oil, and as fats such as coconut or butter or ghee or tallow. So the key point is that the seed oils are containing this compound called linoleic acid that is in present in amounts that we as humans never had that, that degree of ingestion in, in, in our history up, up till then. Is, is that fair to say, Tucker? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's important to note because whenever people hear, people are prone when they hear that something can be bad for you, that they want to get it to zero, right? Omega-6 fats are in just about every food. They're in butter, they're in coconut oil, they're in beef, they're in, you know, fruit. Even apples have a tiny little bit of linoleic acid. So at some level, it's a perfectly normal part of our diet. Um, we've gotten through uh, the industri largely through the industrial processes that were introduced in the 18th century to the point where we can refine foods and take these fats out. And so our consumption of it has gone up manifold since the, since the uh, 19th century. Yeah. With, you know, the introduction of things like cottonseed oil and then corn oil and soybean oil, all of these products were uh, things that up until that period of time would be consumed in fairly small amounts for most of humanity. And most of the fats that we would consume would be things that are high in what I would call healthy fats, which are fats that will not oxidize into toxins very easily. Things like oleic acid, which is the primary fat in avocado and olive oil, and then stearic acid, which is the fat in beef tallow or, you know, palmitic acid, which is the fat that's um, found in butter and also in beef tallow and other animal fats. And most of these are, you know, people have heard of saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, and polyunsaturated fats. Saturated fats are the most stable, despite what you've heard about their health benefits, meaning they don't break down easily into toxins, either in when you're cooking with them or in your body. Monounsaturated fats are slightly more prone to oxidation, but not very, and they don't break down into the toxins. And it's polyunsaturated fats like the omega-6 fats that break down into these highly toxic substances. Omega-3 fats are, you know, the fats that we find in fish, and they are also very prone to breaking down, but we don't eat very much of them. And what they break down to is not nearly as toxic as the things that omega-6 fats break down into. Yeah. And I want to make the point that, that as you said, Saka, there is a natural or a amount of omega-6 fats that we should be consuming and there's a natural ratio between omega-3 and omega-6 that is associated with ideal human health. I think the point about that I really want to emphasize is that today we're eating a highly, highly disproportionate amount of the omega-6 fats. And if you've listened to my episodes with Dr. Penny Fitri and, and Dr. Lucy Burns, they mentioned that the, the, the flip to a low-fat paradigm is is has been very, very critical in this. And part of that flip to a low 
uh, fat paradigm was replacing the saturated animal fat with the highly um, with the unsaturated uh, seed oils, which are are rich in in linoleic acid. And I think everyone can relate to this if they think back or they ask themselves or ask their grandparents what what did my grandparents eat? What did my great great grandparents eat? And invariably, and I often ask this pa- this question to patients in when I see them, is that they say, "Oh, they ate beef dripping, or they ate lamb dripping, they ate butter." So we we know we don't have to go too far back to realize that the major components of the diet when it comes to fat have shifted from these saturated animal fats to these refined uh, omega six oils. Right. So, um, sorry, go ahead, Tucker. No, I, I agree. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. And, mm-hmm. you know, we'll get a little bit into what that means, right? Because one of the harms of switching your fat supply is also getting rid of beneficial fats. For instance, Harvard University of all places has a patent on dairy fat, and they have a patent on dairy fat because they found that it was appeared to be beneficial in helping prevent diabetes, right? So the combination, as those two people you mentioned said, of lowering these beneficial fats that we had been eating for millions of years and replacing them with high amounts of, you know, these novel food products has kind of been a double whammy, mm. I think. And, and the subtle point is that, which makes it kind of, uh, difficult for some people to understand why the seed oils are so harmful is that, as you said, there is a natural amount that we actually need. So, and and the the linoleic acid molecule itself perhaps isn't as toxic by itself as its breakdown products, which we're about to about to discuss. So, there's a there's a, actually a lot of nuance around this topic that I think is exploited. Um, and in in terms of obfuscation to try and convince people, hang on, these these oils aren't as harmful as they they truly are. But in fact, right. when you break down the science, as Tucker has done so brilliantly over his um over the past decade, then we really start to get into the nuts and bolts of of why they're so harmful. So so we've given a, a preview of that, and particularly the fact that they have. Uh, multiple double bonds in the fatty acid, which means they're highly prone to oxidation. So, so Tony, give us an idea of what happens um, when this uh, constituent of seed oils called linoleic acid, what happens when that oxidizes? Well, it breaks down into, so far they've counted hundreds of different molecules, right? So it's rather tough to, they've studied a few of them very intensively. Um, one of the ones that I've been most interested in is a chemical known as 4-hydroxynonanol, uh, which is abbreviated HNE. Um, HNE is notable because it is only made from omega-6 fats, and that's either the linoleic acid that comes along in seed oils or from some of the longer chain omega-6 fats that are made in your body from linoleic acid. Um, and this molecule has been studied fairly intensively since the 1990s. They've correlated it with multiple different chronic diseases. In fact, every single chronic disease that I've looked at has a correlation and at least a correlation, and it's often thought for it to be a causal role in the disease process. It will do everything from 
break your mitochondria to cause genetic damage. Um, so it's not, you know, you always have, you always have to be careful when somebody comes along and says, as I am doing here, that um, this one thing is the cause of everything, right? And I'm going to be the first one to say that is the hallmark of a quack. But this appears to be the case where there are hundreds of thousands of papers in the literature looking into the role of this chemical and other related chemicals on chronic diseases. And they all point to a significant impact on the body, right? And again, since this is only made from these omega-6 fats, we can use it to some extent as a proxy for consumption of these fats, right? So your body has a very sophisticated and robust mechanism to deal with fats like this um, oxidizing and becoming toxic, right? There's an antioxidant produced in the body called glutathione, which is the primary means of detoxifying uh, these uh, HNE and the other lipid, what are known as lipid peroxidation products. Um, this uh, glutathione is so important that if you're, you know, if they modify an animal so that it can't produce glutathione, it will not survive to be born, right? And lots of chronic diseases are associated with decreased rates of glutathione because one of the things that happens, glutathione essentially sacrifices itself, the molecule, by attaching to something like HNE. And then your body can recover some of it and it excretes some of it. So if you see conditions that are correlated with a decline in the antioxidants in the body, it's an indication that something is causing them to go down, right? This can either be that process is broken of producing them, or you have too much of an oxidant that they are trying to rid the body of. So we know that there's, you know, you know, there's, a, there's, we know that exposure to these things is normal and expected. And, but we can also say pretty confidently that we are way past what's a normal exposure and that we see that normal exposure having effects on every, that abnormal exposure having effects on every system in the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a very good summary. Can you explain exactly, maybe we'll go through a couple of diseases and give us an idea about how exactly this is um, having an effect. I mean, di diabetes is, and metabolic dysfunction is a particular interest of mine. And people don't, people even within the medical community uh, and the low-carb low community, uh, focusing on carbohydrates and the degree to which they provoke an insulin response as the main driver of, of, of the increased incidence of metabolic dysfunction and obesity. But not many people realize is that these oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism or the lipid, lipid peroxidase, whatever you want to call them, they actually contribute themselves to the development and worsening of, of, of insulin resistance. So can you give us a bit of an idea about how that might be the case? Yeah. So let's just touch on epidemiology quickly. Um, there are lots of populations in the world historically and currently that have a high consumption of carbohydrates. None of them has a problem with diabetes, right? Not a single one with one exception that we will get into. 
until they start consuming seed oils, at which point they car diabetes becomes epidemic in that population, right? And this goes back thousands of years to when diabetes was first discovered in India, which is coincidentally the place where seed oils were first consumed um, in large quantities in the food supply. Um, sesame seed oil, as far as we know in the historical record, was introduced about 5,000 years ago in India, and diabetes was recognized both type 1 and type 2 about 2,500 years ago by an Indian physician. Um, in the modern era, diabetes in the United States was an extremely rare disease. Um, Gary Taubes, in his excellent book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, goes through the recipe or the records of the hospitals in Boston, uh, Massachusetts, which at the time was the center of medical science in the United States. And diabetes was a disease that they would see, you know, handfuls of people over decades, right? Um, now we're at a state where arguably, depending on how you define it, 50% of the United States has diabetes. Um, so, some, so we're talking about a fundamental and radical shift in the diet. Um, that's interesting because diabetes started going up around the same time that seed oils were first into the, introduced into the American diet through the consumption of cottonseed oil, um, which was basically introduced as an adulterant into the lard supply. They would, they figured out that they had this, <laughs> what at the time was an in, effectively an industrial waste product from cotton production, right? Cottonseed oil is kind of a problem. You could use it for lamp fuel. It was pretty good for that. You couldn't really feed it to animals because it's overtly toxic. If you feed it to animals too, <laughs> too high a quantity, I mean, I'm laughing because this sounds so ridiculous, but this yeah. is unfortunately the historical record and um but you could cut lard with it and people wouldn't notice there are some accounts that you will read from the medical literature back there like for instance when they introduced crisco into the diet crisco is crystallized cottonseed oil right that's what the acronym stands for and part of the sales pitch for crisco was that it was easier to digest than lard and they say that at a time where most, you know, 20% of the lard sold in the country was actually cottonseed oil, right? The process of hydrogenating cottonseed oil into Crisco and the purification that they did to make Crisco does a lot to get a detoxified cottonseed product into the food supply. So ironically, they were right. It was easier to digest than lard, but that's only because their refining process detoxified the cottonseed, mm. um, right? So in 1961, they invented a product called intralipid, right? So there are medical conditions. There's one called short gut syndrome where a baby is born with a small intestine that's so short that it is inadequate to allow them to digest, to absorb food, right? They can eat. The food goes through their stomach into their small intestine, which is too short to absorb it. So they starve to death. So they've come, they came up with this idea of feeding them intravenously. And when they did that, they initially would do it with pure carbohydrate, but they would get a, what they call an essential fatty acid deficiency, right? 
So there are fats that are essential to the human, that are what they call essential, which means you can't make them yourself, so you have to consume them, right? So in 1961, they came up with this product called Intralipid, which was soybean oil, basically. And soybean oil contains enough linoleic acid, which is conditionally essential, meaning it can substitute for the fats your body actually needs. And so they started using that in um, humans as an IV food source. In 1964, they realized that using intralipid as a IV food supply also induces diabetes. <laughs> so it's now become the standard way to induce diabetes in humans if you want to make them insulin resistant you give them a shot of insulin, of intralipid, and they become um, insulin resistant. Now, there's another problem with that, however, is that it often causes liver failure. So they've now live, you know, I mean, this is definitely a Hobson's choice. There are two bad outcomes. You can die quickly of starvation because you can't absorb any food, or you can die maybe over a longer period of time from liver failure. So um, you know, they continued to use intralipid for decades, but they finally figured out that if you don't give, if you don't include linoleic acid in the, or you only include very small amounts of linoleic acid in the infusion, it doesn't cause the liver failure. And what they've done is switch over, or they're in the process of switching over to a fish oil product called OmegaVen which is now sort of FDA approved and Omega Ven not only doesn't cause liver failure, but can actually reverse the liver failure that's caused from intralipid. So researchers, um, there's a fellow, Gerald Shulman, uh, who's at one of the hospitals up, still up in Boston, um, has looked into the types of fats that are actually causing this insulin resistance. Other research have done so also. And it turns out that the most effective way to cause insulin resistance is through oxidized linoleic acid. There you go. And, right. and that's, that's a really good, uh, I guess, proof of concept of the mechanism by which these oils are making people insulin resistant and metabolically unwell. And it's relevant to people that, are, that we see every day in, in, in the emergency department or in, in the GP clinic. Um, and they have, uh, hepatic steatosis or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and the that is basically a disease of accumulation of fat within the liver there's a, a hallmark of of metabolic syndrome and basically is indicating that the body itself is is having problems with its um with its metabolic function so uh, yes fructose yes carbohydrates yes sugar also contribute to this process but as tuck is so um, elegantly described if you have a diet that's high in uh, linoleic acid uh, and you're ingesting its its uh, oxidized metabolites like 4-HNE, you are directly uh, contributing to um, developing uh, a fatty liver. And as, as you say, if that that progresses uh, over over a, a period of time, then you will become cirrhotic and you will have liver failure from uh, basically unopposed inflammation and what what right. I imagine would be an overwhelmed antioxidant and glutathione system by just a, a constant e exposure. 
Right. And it's, you know, it's important. There are two important things to note about this. One is that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a new disease from the 1980s, which is in my memory, right? (laughs) This isn't something that happened, like I said, with diabetes in India 2,500 years ago. This is something that's happened in a lot of our lifetimes. Um, It is inducible through injecting soybean oil into your veins. The single biggest change in the human diet over the last hundred years has been the rapid increase in the intake of soybean oil. And what's really important to recognize is that if they just inject sugar, glucose, right, you don't get liver failure, right? It's got to have these omega-6 fats, according to the research that we have right now. And it would make sense, right, that it would be a recent disease because we've only, A, started eating large amounts of this and at the same time been told that the fats that we evolved to eat are harmful, which is, I don't think, the case, right? Yeah, that's so... Liver failure, the primary cause of liver failure up until recently was hepatitis, right, which is a viral infection that can kill your liver. Because we can now cure hepatitis, liver failure cases from that cure most of the time, not always, um, but you know we can, whereas we weren't able to before. Cases of liver failure from hepatitis are going down. They are being replaced by cases of liver failure, starting with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Yeah, and I believe it was called prior to the diagnosis or the labeling it as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is now been called metabolic association associated fatty liver disease. Prior to that, the, the entity was known as cryptogenic cirrhosis, with that name directly implying that we didn't know they didn't know what exactly was causing it. Right. Um, well we know now and it, it is the, the modern food environment um, of which what, what we're arguing, uh, a diet high in linoleic acid is uh, a major contributing factor. Right. The, and, the, and mm. you know, liver failure, the common cause of liver failure is, of course, consuming too much alcohol. And the story of the doctors who discovered non-alcoholic fatty liver disease was they had this old lady who came in with cirrhosis of the liver and they said, well, you know, how much do you drink? And she said, I haven't had a drink in my whole life. What are you talking about, doctor? (laughs) It's the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And now we're seeing this not in little old ladies, but children are coming down with this, Mm. right? Who've also never had a drink in their lives. Mm. Now, just since one doctor said to me once upon a time, well, you're not suggesting that polyunsaturated fats are associated with alcoholic liver failure, are you? And I indeed am, because we have animal models where if you give them beef tallow, which has very low amounts of linoleic acid, you can give them up to 30% of their calories as ethanol, and they will not get liver failure. Wow. The title of the paper, I'm doing this from memory, but it's basically linoleic acid is required for induction of alcoholic liver failure in wow. animals, right? So- there's regardless of whether or not you're drinking booze there's a clear link between these omega-6 fats and liver failure yeah and and the the other interesting point is that the time of onset from drinking a large consumption of alcohol to the development of you know cirrhosis obviously it's variable in different patients but 
is 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 relatively longer compared to how quickly we're seeing progression of liver disease in young people and in people who are metabolically unwell uh, with metabolic associated fatty liver disease. So th- that implies to me that as uh, in terms of hepatotoxicity of different substances, linoleic acid um, and and what particularly whatever else is contributing um, to to that process is incredibly potent in in inducing liver dysfunction compared to alcohol. Yes. Well, and you know, it's interesting. Um, part of the detoxification mechanism, you know, there's a common thread here, right? The detox, part of the detox pathway for alcohol is an enzyme called aldehyde dehydrogenase, right? So when you drink out, you know, ethanol, it's converted into acetaldehyde, which is then converted into, uh, darn, I can't remember the next step, but that is detoxified by this um, aldehyde dehydrogenase, ALDH, right? ALDH is also what detoxifies HNE, the chemical we were talking about that is produced from linoleic acid. And if you have, so for instance, they took a road, they took another rodent model and they gave them a, not much linoleic acid and it would cause them to become obese. And then they gave them a chemical that would stimulate their production of this aldehyde dehydrogenase and it prevented the linoleic acid from causing obesity, right? So we have this common pathway and it kind of makes sense that taking two toxins, alcohol and HNE that are going through the same detox pathway would produce a worse outcome than either one of them independently, right? Because there's only Mm -hmm. so much bandwidth in the body in these detox pathways. Yeah. And the point I want to make is that there's, there's a multifactorial kind of insult if we think about the modern food environment and in addition to the linoleic acid just imagine someone who's sitting down at mcdonald's and they've got the large uh supersized coke uh and they've got the fries the supersized fries which are are just completely doused and soaked in soybean or, or canola or vegetable oil that's rich in linoleic acid. They're having a high load of, uh, of fructose, particularly in the form of a high fructose corn syrup. That itself might be contaminated with glyphosate or Roundup, which is, again, ubiquitous in the, in the refined food environment. Both of those substances additionally have been shown to contribute to the development of metabolic-associated fatty liver disease. So what, what we're yeah. doing is we're, we're stacking insults on top of each other and it's and they're synergistically causing harm. So yeah, I mean, I've, I've actually seen a couple of papers in humans looking at the negative effects of a fructose load, right? And they use HNE as the index of harm, as the marker mm. of harm, right? So yeah, sit down at a McDonald's. The healthiest thing on your plate is the burger patty, right? yeah. and then you've got a bunch of fries in. Uh, that are, you know, thick with seed oils because the potatoes absorb the fat. There's a lot of HNE in the potatoes because that's what the heating process does to linoleic acid. And then you've got a Coke with a lot of fructose in it, which when it gets into your body is going to accelerate the oxidation of of the linoleic acid that's already in your body. And they track this in humans, in children, 
they're like, oh, look, they've we've given them fructose and the amount of HNE is going up. And the particular papers I'm thinking of, they never, they never connect that dot, right? Mm. They never say, mm. gee, Coke causes the fat in the French fries to become toxic faster. But mm. that's and and that I mean we know that this concept in epidemiology is called effect modification, um, and it means that you've got you know, multiple factors and they're kind of exacerbating whatever outcome that, yeah. that we're seeing. It it actually reminds me additionally, and this is a tangentially related, which is uh, a finding I believe it was in uh, the Sydney um, diet heart study where they were feeding two groups: one was uh, butter and one was uh, seed oil rich diet and what they noticed was that um one was an margarine out- actually mar- margarine okay there you go the the outcome that they measured which i believe was all cause mortality or people dying was was that much greater so that the the, C- the margarine group died at a higher rate than the butter group but smokers who ha- were in the margarine group were had even higher mortality right. so the concept is that effect modification or if you're stacking these oxidative insults or harmful insults on top of each other, you're going you're gonna to accelerate your premature death um, much, much quicker. Right, right, right. And, you know, smoking is another thing. The toxins and some of the toxins in smoking that they think are strongly involved in the cancer process are the same toxins that seed oils convert to in your body, right? So... What does that mean? Two of the leading causes of cancer in humans appear to be smoking and frying with cooking oils, right? So there are, you know, interestingly, the epidemiology of lung cancer is that there's two different types. One is associated with smoking and it's primarily found in men because men do most of the smoking, especially in places like Asia right? But they have lots of women who are getting uh, lung cancer. And it turns out that they're getting lung cancer because they are frying, they're cooking with um, seed oils, and they can replicate that in animals. So the World Health Organization has issued a warning about what they call high temperature cooking, showing saying that it's a human carcinogen Mm. right and it's not you know when you start getting down to you know smoking contains another aldehyde toxin called acrolein and acrolein is also produced from heating seed oils so you're literally getting similar toxins from the two sources yeah incredible incidentally smoking is going down around the world. So lung cancer from smoking is going down around the world, but cooking with seed oils is going up around the world. So the type Mm. of cancer that's the adenocarcinoma that's associated with, you know, non-smoking related lung cancer is going up around the world, Mm. primarily in women because generally women do the cooking. Yeah. And you can just imagine how many people are standing over, you know, a hot, Rock filled with sunflower or, or canola or soy oil, um, right. you know, day in day out, just inhaling all those um, oxidated metabolites, um, you know, deep deep into their lungs. Um, yes. So I guess that the moral of that story is: if you smoke, don't eat seed oils, and if you eat seed oils, don't smoke. <laughs> and, and don't 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 yeah don't cook your uh, don't cook with your cooking oil. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and 
<laughs> don't, don't use it at all. I mean, and I mean, I, I've done a fair bit of traveling, and I'm sure Tucker, you have as well. And what you notice, no matter where you go in the world, how ubiquitous seed oils are. And yeah. each country might have a different one. In the US, it's it's commonly corn and soy. Here in Australia, it's predominantly canola and sunflower. Um, so it's every kind of country has their own local brand of high linoleic acid oil that's, that, that, that's harming them. And every single one of these societies went from eating a, a traditional diet rich in animal fats to this seed oil diet and, and everyone is, is, is overweight and, and obese. Yes. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the interest, you know, I don't know how much we want to get into epidemiologies because it's kind of a tedious subject, but I've heard people say epidemiology doesn't support this association. And I have a simple question. Show me a, show me a population with a high intake of seed oils that doesn't have heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. I can show you societies that don't consume seed oils that don't have any of those three. Mm -hmm. There are lots of accounts of folks like that going back decades, right? But in every single human society, when you start adding seed oil consumption in, you get all the chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. And and I want you to mention that society that you were, we were going to touch on who do have a high linoleic acid consumption, I believe, seasonally. Um, yes. So that is um, the Bushmen in Africa, right? So... They're the only population eating a hunter-gatherer diet, right, who fails an oral glucose tolerance test. Now, it's interesting because even the Eskimos, who basically never eat any plant-based sources of carbohydrate, don't become glucose intolerant. But the Bushmen do seasonally, and it appears to correlate with their consumption of seed oils that they are getting from something called the mongongo nut, right? Which is a large portion of their calories. And the oil of the mongongo nut contains a lot of linoleic acid. And, you know, they will get, as the paper said, what appears to be diabetes. And the paper noted, it's very surprising that these people would appear to be diabetic because none of the other populations like this ever appear to be diabetic. They've also tend to have some of the pictures I've seen. They've got a fat tummy, which may indicate, you know, a little visceral obesity, which is, it seems, where the body is storing and dealing with the consequences of linoleic acid toxicity first. Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating. And it really, I guess, builds this hypothesis where you have societies that are eating otherwise an ancestrally appropriate diet, but when they jack that percentage of ingested linoleic acid up seasonally, they get the hallmarks of um, metabolic dysfunction that we see in, you know, in the West all year round. And no, the other only factor that's changing is the, the percentage of linoleic acid in, in, in that diet. So um, when we're thinking about cause and effect, and as you, as you were mentioning earlier, um, we're building a strong case that that is a causative relationship. Right. And, you know, it's the same thing. There was a paper done in 2012 by the National Institutes of Health. Um, the title is Linoleic Acid Induces Obesity through, you know, their effects on the endocannabinoid system. 
And they took a diet that looked very similar to the standard lab diet that's used in labs all around the world to induce for what they call diet-induced obesity. Um, and they varied the linoleic acid content in the diet. And they varied it against the saturated fat content. And they kept the sugar and the protein and the total fat amount constant across all the different diets that they looked at. And the mice eating the low linoleic acid diet, they modeled it 2% to 8% against 8%, right? Because 2% was the amount of linoleic acid that we were eating at the beginning of the 20th century. And 8% is about the amount that people were eating when they did the study in 2012. Um, and there was a clear, you know, they have these upsetting to some people pictures of these little mice flayed open. So you can see how fatty the linoleic acid made them. But there's a really interesting aspect to that. And the, the interesting facet is that DHA was somewhat protective against the obesogenic effects of linoleic acid, right? Which may explain why we see populations like the Japanese who eat a lot of fish, who don't have these same problems with obesity as the genetically very similar Chinese who don't have the same level of fish consumption. Mm. Um, and gets yeah. us back into again, you know, that there are multiple variables going on here that could modulate this effect of uh, seed oil consumption. Yes. In Fa the other fats in your diet. Yeah, fascinating. And for, for the listener, DHA um, specifically refers to the omega-3 fatty acid and is very, very important um, health dietary component, um, especially for newborn and um, pregnant women and, and the newborns in terms of brain development. But right. as you say, Tucker, it's in, in that population, it, it indicates not only do you need to, to get disease, not only do you need to eat a high linoleic acid diet with omega, these omega-6s, but you also need to eat or have an absence of protective omega-3s. So there's a, there's a lot of ways that we can go. Um, there's a lot of kind of fail-safes. And if, if you're doing everything wrong, then you're, you're going to get disease but perhaps you can do a couple things right um to to protect yourself right. i want to i want to flip now in and you mentioned really briefly the endocannabinoid system and we as doctors see patients who are basically dealing with food addiction and from a clinical point of view I think about the drivers of overeating and obesity as physiological and psychological psychological uh are deep-seated, I believe, deep-seated, unresolved traumas that people use and, and kind of self-medicate them themselves with with food and 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 refined sugar and you know all, all donuts and all these types of foods. But there's a physiological reason why that that food addiction is being potentiated, and that is this endocannabinoid system. So, Tucker, explain to us what makes uh, the, these linoleic acid-rich foods so addictive. Yeah. And addictive isn't the wrong word to use, right? We have a drug, which was human approved at one point, um, that blocks the uptake of these chemicals called endocannabinoids. And it was, interestingly, an obesity drug, but really interestingly, it also improved the markers of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, Right. So it was considered to be a wonder drug when it came out. Um, it unfortunately had a negative side effect, which we'll get into, but it was withdrawn from the market because of that negative side effect. So what does it do? It when you eat 
linoleic acid. Your body detects it via receptors thought to be in the tongue. And in your gut, it starts a process of converting linoleic acid into another omega-6 fat called arachidonic acid. And then it converts that into these chemicals called endocannabinoids, right? Endo means inside, cannabinoid means similar to the chemicals in found in cannabis plants, marijuana, right? Now, everybody's heard about smoking marijuana giving you the munchies, okay? It does that because of the effect of the chemical THC, which is the psychoactive drug in pot, right? Um, which gives you whatever effects you get from pot. And one of those effects is the munchies, right? Now, this is a reliable enough effect so that synthetic THD is sold as a drug called dronabinil, approved by the US FDA. I don't know what its status is in Australia, where I presume some of your listeners are, but it is used to induce people to eat, right? So it's given to people who have the wasting of cancer, cachexia, and it's also given to people with AIDS who don't have an appetite to make them eat, right? So we know this effect works and we know it happens, right? I mean, <laughs> you get any better confirmation than human approved drugs. Now, what this, the other drug that I was mentioning, which is called Ramonabant, does is it blocks the uptake of these endocannabinoids, right? It blocks the endocannabinoid receptors, which exist in your brain and all throughout your body, right? So specifically in the gut, when you, why does this exist? Well, if you don't eat, your gut starts converting the fats that are around in your gut, in the lining of your gut, the arachidonic acid into endocannabinoids and it makes you hungry, right? So what linoleic acid does when you consume it is makes you think that you're hungry even though you're eating, okay? Now there's another little facet. That's a normal reaction, right? There's another fat that has that same react, that same effect on your body, which is oleic acid, which is, I like to call it your body's favorite fat because it's the fat that's most produced in your body. It's a normal part of your diet. It's in animal fats, you know, it's in butter, it's in olive oil, it's in all the stuff that we're told to eat, right? Oleic acid, when you eat it, stimulates your appetite just like linoleic acid does. But then it's converted into another chemical called OEA. And I can't remember what that stands for right now. What does OEA do? OEA is the off signal. It tells you that you're not hungry anymore. Okay. And if you take an animal and they've done experiments with this and you make it fat with a high fat diet, which means a high linoleic acid diet, and then you give the animal OEA, it turns off the obesity signal. Body weight drops like it fell off a cliff. And then as soon as you stop uh, injecting OEA, body weight goes right back up. I mean, it's the clearest signal I've ever seen. The problem is if you include linoleic acid in the diet, it blocks the production of OEA and it blocks the off signal. So you get what you're supposed to get, right? When you, I mean, this is basic evolutionary survival. When you eat food, you should get hungry to eat it, right? When you encounter food, you shouldn't be like, eh, I'm not hungry today, right? Yeah. 
those people didn't survive. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The problem that we have now is we have this, what they call a hyperphagia, an overeating signal, and we don't get the off signal anymore. So we just eat and eat. And you wonder, you know, people come to the United States and they marvel at the enormous portion sizes. We've turned off the off signal. People eat something that makes them hungry and turns off the off signal at the same point. So we just eat and eat and eat. It's um, it's fascinating. And if people understood that, they would maybe uh, have a maybe a bit more um, understanding of why they're so addicted to to these right. type of foods. And, and now, you, I mean, sorry, go on. is it fair to call it an addiction? Okay, so it turns out Romanovant, the drug that prevents your body from receiving this eating signal is also effective at turning off the desire to consume cocaine, right? It's been used in treating alcoholics. It's been used in treating smokers because it turns off the addictive pathway that can be triggered by these substances. Incredible. It is fair to call it addictive. And anybody who says that food addiction doesn't exist, doesn't know what they're talking about. Now, interestingly, there is another way to trigger that pathway. And they discovered this, interestingly enough, in one of these experiments that I'm describing. They had two diets that they were feeding them. One is a high linoleic acid, what they call a high fat diet. And the other was a high sugar diet. And they discovered that sugar also stimulates the endocannabinoid pathway, just not as effectively. And in humans, what we tend to see is, you know, sugar in the diet as a solid doesn't really induce obesity. Uh, Liquid sugar induces obesity. Not very strongly, but it's definitely a factor, which gets us back to the McDonald's example. Okay, so you've got, you know, whenever an epidemiologist puts up a picture of a McDonald's meal as like, this is what's wrong with our diet, they're thinking about the hamburger patty. Yeah. But what you should be looking at is the Coke and the French fries, right? Yeah. And even the French fries, there's a great study done by some epidemiologists out of Harvard University where they looked at what foods are associated with Americans gaining weight over time. And the absolute number one food by a large margin over everything else that they looked at were fried potatoes, not potatoes that weren't fried. Interesting. And what are fried potatoes in universally? Seed oils. Seed oils. Incredible. I mean, you, you hear about stories of food addiction and you hear about people who uh, are, you know, grossly overweight and they go through the McDonald's drive through and they, they take a, you know, a supersized Big Mac meal and then they still, you know, 10 minutes from getting home, they actually pull into another fast food joint because they're still that hungry and undoubtedly they would have eaten the large fries. So they are so addicted physiologically to these types of foods. And as Tucker's explained, uh, done such a good job of explaining is that it's the chemicals within the the fries, specifically the breakdown, the linoleic acid, the breakdown products of linoleic acid are biochemically triggering uh, addiction centers in your brain to force you to keep eating and turning off the satiety signaling 
um, with the, those same chemicals. So people, if people understood that, they would might give them a better idea about why they need to be so diligent in avoiding seed oils is because right. it's not a fair fight. You're, you're biochemically um, up against it in terms of controlling your portion size, you know, eating less, moving more. I mean, it just gets thrown out the window when we understand the biochemistry uh, and the physiology of what's actually happening here. You know, no one with the, the strongest willpower is going to be able to, over a long time period, be able to resist, uh, you know, overeating or just eating French fries in, in moderation. And, you know, that's often what we see. So um, thanks, Taco. I really liked how you gave us that, that, that information, that background, because as you said, sugar consumption and seed oil consumption is driving our endogenous endocannabinoid system and in terms of, of, of feeding, overeating and, and the development of, of metabolic, metabolic dysfunction. Right, right. And there's, and there's the double whammy there is the other thing that that chemical HNE that I mentioned does is it alters your body's fat storage system to overproduce fat and it causes obesity in every species. I mean, they've discovered this in bacteria, in C. elegans, the worms that are used in labs. And it apparently also has the same effect in people, which probably explains why those French fried potatoes are so fattening because you were literally eating a chemical that makes you overstore fat. Yeah. In incredible. And I want to quickly ask you, um, you pre previewed it before, prior to the introduction of, of seed oils into the human, human diet, and as you mentioned, that happened in the early 1900s with the repurposement of uh, cottonseed uh, oil, which is, again, I want to emphasize, an industrial waste product. This is not a decision that was made for through first principles, understanding or, of human health and the optimal human fat. It was literally a repurposed waste product of industry that was conveniently used to you know improve the bottom line of of, of the the crisco company and what is an the evolutionary appropriate percentage of linoleic acid in the diet um com now um, and compared to now well that's another nuance that we should probably touch on right because if you read things like the american dietary guidelines they mentioned that linoleic acid is essential and therefore you should eat it. In truth, that was the result of bad science. Linoleic acid is not essential as far as we know, based on the experiments that have been done. Originally, it was determined that it was essential because of some mouse experiments that were done in the 1930s or the 1920s. Recently, the folks who were dealing with these children who were dying of liver failure up at the Boston Children's Hospital and we're running into this is the this is the effect that the idea that linoleic acid was essential was having other physicians were not willing to try their omega ven treatment because the percent of linoleic acid in fish oil is about half a percent right hmm. whereas there's this huge amount of linoleic acid in soybean oil, I think it's like 50, 60%, something like that, right? And they said, well, it's essential. We need to give it to these children. So what they did was they reran the experiments that were done in the 30s in, again, rodents, and they gave them either, they gave them fish oil and a tiny little bit of arachidonic acid, which is the omega-6 fat that is, it turns out, actually essential and no linoleic acid. And 
Then they proceeded to breed these rat, these rodents for 10 generations to see if any bad effects would come over time. And they were perfectly fine. So linoleic acid is not an essential fat. If it is an essential fat, the same people at Boston Children had children who had fatty acid deficiency, and they were able to cure it by giving them fish oil with only a half a percent of linoleic acid, right? Mm. So the assuming it is, a, it is essential, and we don't know that it is, the amount of the amount of linoleic acid that you need is basically the amount that you would get if you diligently avoided it in your entire diet, right? Because half a percent of by calories of linoleic acid is about how much is in beef, which doesn't have much, or in butter, which doesn't have much, or in coconut oil, which doesn't have much. So if you diligently avoid it and eat real whole foods, it is impossible to get a linoleic acid deficiency. Nobody outside the care of a physician in human history has ever gotten a linoleic acid deficiency, period. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that says it all. So any additional refined source of linoleic acid, as in that you'd get in the modern diet, the modern industrially refined diet, is additional to your needs and is probably harming you through these break, linoleic acid breakdown products that, that we've just um, explained about. Right. And this so, is, you know, this becomes important in diseases like cancer, which everybody's concerned about, right? So the animal models of cancer show, I'm thinking of breast cancer here specifically, which is of concern to at least half your audience. Um, it goes up 0% linoleic acid. They can't give the animals cancer. Another paper, linoleic acid is required for laboratory induction of breast cancer in mice. Required. Okay. From zero, it goes up to 4%. And after 4%, if it keeps going up, it doesn't have any additional effect. That threshold effect has been seen in multiple different kinds of cancers. And what's really interesting is that in skin cancer specifically, they see the same threshold effect, but then after a certain point, it keeps going up with the level of total fat consumed, right? So it seems to have an effect where you can't out-consume it if you're consuming too. You can't out-compete it by eating other healthy fats if you're consuming too much of it. Mm. So you want to consume as little as possible. And if we look at skin cancer all around the world, you know, this is another thing where they can control in an animal model how much how fast they get skin cancer by how much linoleic acid they give them right we see skin cancer rates going up like this all around the world as seed oil rates have gone but if you look at you know cultures eating traditional diets and they don't get the same kinds of skin cancer that we get on a modern diet mm -hmm. yeah i mean fascinating in australia is you know we have so much skin cancer it's skin cancer you know, central it's not even funny, and, and there's lots of there's a lot of factors. We have fair skinned, um, you know, the yeah. fair skinned people, and, and we're living at a high latitude. And but yeah, that we have uh, just as similar to the U.S., we have a lot of high seed oil consumption. Right. Um, I, I I I scratch my head because I often see in the mainstream discourse uh, information or, or narratives about cancer. 
um, uh, I see non-profit organizations, let's defeat cancer, let's kick cancer, you know, invest or donate all this money and we'll, we'll kind of try and get to the bottom of this conundrum and, you know, eternal mystery that is cancer. Yes, every single person that I believe that is coming through, I mean, who has a cancer diagnosis, they're eating a, a standard uh, amount of linoleic acid that would be typical for a Western diet. Um, almost invariably, I'd be. There might be some exceptions, but I, I, I presume that that they are. It's. I mean, you know, we didn't really get into that part of it, but I wasn't afraid of saturated fat. Biology was my thing when I was a kid, and I knew that saturated fat was a normal part of the diet. Mm-hmm. So I didn't make any attempt to avoid saturated fat. Mm-hmm. When I fixed my diet, I was shocked that my primary fat source turned out to be seed oils. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. It was so bad that within a couple of weeks, I got what's known as rabbit starvation, which is when you're not consuming enough fat, you know, and you're eating protein, it actually, the protein starts becoming toxic after a while. Yeah. I got this and I didn't eat a, I didn't go out of my way to eat a healthy diet because I was eating saturated fat and not worrying about it. Um, But still most of the fat that I was eating turned out to be from things like salad dressing and, you know, restaurant foods, yeah, and, which are universally not using saturated or monounsaturated fats. Yeah. 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 It's like, so, so there is this hidden, I mean, for you and I, we, we know, cause we just spent an hour talking about it, but for most people, they don't realize that what they're eating, if they're just going about their daily life is putting them on a path to, to developing some kind of cancer. And it's tragic. Every new cancer diagnosis is tragic. Um, but I just wonder and I marvel at how many cases could be prevented if we got that level of linoleic acid down to something before the, the turn of the, the 20th century um, and got all these substances, the HNE, the HODE, all, all, all these carcinogenic breakdown products of the linoleic acid out of, out of the diet. I mean, how many cases of cancer could we be preventing? I mean, it's... Probably the, the vast majority of them, right? Mm-hmm. Most people who die of cancer die of the cancers that are associated with eating a Western diet. And the hallmark mm-hmm. of a Western diet is consumption of seed oils. Now, the mm-hmm. big confounder there, obviously, is smoking. Smoking not only makes, not only gives you lung cancer, but it raises your odds of getting every other kind of cancer as well. So, yeah. And, um, the thing we haven't discussed yet is heart disease. And I think it's a great point there to answer your question of how much heart disease could we expect? You know, how much of these chronic diseases that are associated with a Western diet could we expect to have if we fix the Western diet? There was a fantastic study done in the 1960s looking at the geographic distribution of ischemic heart disease, which is heart attack essentially, right? And one of the really fascinating things about a heart attack to a layman like myself, this may be old news to a physician, is that when you have a heart attack, it causes damage in the heart. Duh, but it doesn't heal. So if somebody dies in a car crash and they had a heart attack 20 years before, on autopsy, you can go and look at their heart and tell that they had had a heart attack by the damage that was done and the scar tissue, right? So that's really interesting. So what they did is they did autopsies in the United States and in the countries where 
these different populations they were looking at in the United States had come from. So they looked at Japanese Americans, they looked at Korean Americans, and they looked at African Americans. And then they went back and they looked at Japanese in Japan, Koreans in Korea, the author of the paper was Korea, so I guess he had an interest in that, and Africans in Africa, okay? Now, African Americans nowadays have the highest rate of heart disease in the United States. Mm-hmm. In, 19, in the 1960s, the paper was published in 1964, I think. In the 1950s and 60s, when they did this, their rate of heart disease was half of that of um, white Americans, right? Wow. So there's been a huge change just over those few decades, okay? Yeah. What did they find when they looked at Africans in Africa? They did, I think it was in Nigeria, 4,500 autopsies looking for evidence of a heart dis- of a heart attack, and they found one. That's zero percent. One out of forty five hundred is a heart disease, a heart attack rate of zero percent, and that was compared to in the, you know, twenty odd percent in the American autopsies, twelve odd percent in the African American autopsies. Zero, right? In Japan, it was Japan started eating seed oils, you know, quite a while ago with rapeseed. There was a big difference even in Japan. Outside of Tokyo, it was like one one and a half percent, I want to say. Inside Tokyo, it was about five percent, which makes sense because consumption of seed oils goes up with consumption of processed foods. Yeah. And it averaged out to about a three percent rate. Japanese and Americans. 18% rate, right? So we could theoretically eliminate the vast majority of these cases, right? I don't know. I mean, we could theoretically get it down to 0% or something that's indistinguishable from zero with rounding, right? Which is just mind boggling. It is. But when you talk to a cardiologist None of them know this, yeah. right? They think now the point of that study was they wanted to determine the genetic relationship between myocardial infarction, heart disease, and obviously these immigrant populations in the United States. And their conclusion was there's no genetic component, right? Mm. So every time a cardiologist tells you to worry about LDL, what he's telling you is that Heart disease is a genetic disease because your LDL is determined by your genes. Okay? Yes. But we know it's not a genetic disease because they did this big survey with thousands of autopsies. They even brought hearts back to the United States to make sure the autopsies were done correctly. Mm. Right? So, where? <laughs> so, back in the 1980s, I think, or 1970s, 1980s. They were looking into the relationship between LDL and heart disease. They, the Brown and Goldstein, who received two doctors who received the Nobel Prize for discovering the LDL receptor, they took LDL and they put it in with a bunch of uh, cells called macrophages, which are the first step in heart disease is thought to be the conversion of these macrophages into what they call foam cells. A foam cell is a cell that's stuffed full of fat and cholesterol, right? And they get it from eating 
LDL, it was thought at the time. So they did this experiment and it didn't work. Oops. So some other doctors, Steinberg and Whitstone, what Brown and Goldstein figured out was that modified LDL caused the macrophages to convert into foam cells, the first step of atherosclerosis. But the type of modification they use doesn't exist in the body. So Steinberg and Whitstone figured out the type of modification that happens in the body, right? And what is it? It's the oxidation of the omega-6 fats in the LDL. Mm. The foam cells to convert or the macrophages to convert into foam cells, and it causes every other step in atherosclerosis, right? And even that was that paper was published, if I remember correctly, in 1989, and they just came out, you know, the European Atherosclerosis Society just came out with a big study saying what actually causes heart disease, and they referred to that same study. It's the only explanation we have in medicine for what causes heart disease is the oxidative damage caused by seed oils in the body. Period. End of story. Yeah, um, and that's. Uh, I mean, that's another whole conversation that I think maybe we should we should do another whole podcast on. But for the for the listener, basically LDL cholesterol, which is a, a basically a, a lipid raft, and it and it's it's a, a basically a sphere that helps carry around fats and fat soluble vitamins in in the body. And what Tucker is saying is that. Um, and what I, I believe and what I think the science suggests is that if you don't alter that particle, if that particle is just normal, healthy LDL, it, it is insufficient to cause and contribute to development of plaque and blockages of your coronary arteries. However, uh, if you modify that particle, if you oxidize it, um, if you damage it and you um, uh, allow it to become damaged, through the consumption of a high linoleic acid diet, through the, the all these uh, toxic breakdown products of linoleic acid, you damage that LDL particle, um, that lipid raft, and then it becomes aware to the immune system. It becomes ingested and go gobbled up by by your immune cells, the macrophages, and that process is the is a critical step in the in the propagation of. A plaque in the arteries which will eventually grow large enough if you continue to do the the lifestyle and dietary things that are promoting its formation until it clots off and obstructs your the, the flow of blood through your coronary arteries you get loss of perfusion to a part of your heart your heart stops beating or, or it stops perfusing you get pain and you know all, all the all the, the the bad stuff that happens when you when you have a heart attack so that's a fascinating yep. point and it's right Go on, go on, Tucker. Further, we were discussing before multifactorial natures. Hmm. What are things that you can do? You know, Steinberg and Whitstam demonstrated, and it's been done repeatedly, that if you replace linoleic acid in the diet with oleic acid from like olive oil, that you make the LDL resistant to oxidation because oleic hmm. acid is not as resistant as we discussed back at the beginning, right? Hmm. This is why cardiologists recommend the Mediterranean diet right? Mm. Most successful diet ever reduced the amount of linal in preventing heart disease, reduced the amount of linoleic acid in the diet, right? That's mm. why they recommend the uh, Mediterranean diet for heart health because of that mechanism, right? Yeah. But what are the things that you can do that make that process worse? You smoke 
That yeah. accelerates the rate of oxidation in your LDL. You eat sugar. There are studies showing in human children that if you give them more fructose, their ox LDL goes up, right? Alcohol will also do it. Anything, you know, anything that's going to increase the oxidative stress on the body is going to accelerate the oxidation of these omega-6 fats. But you mm. control how much of them is in your body, right? You can make your blood more resistant to becoming toxic, right? Oxaldehyde yeah. is toxic to your body. Yeah. That's why it causes the damage. Yeah. And the root, you know, another little factor I'll throw out, they've actually done an experiment in monkeys where they gave them Kool-Aid along with other stuff, right? And they got fat and they also had their level of ox LDL go up. And then they gave them an antibody to ox LDL, right? So it removed, it caused the body to basically remove the oxidized LDL. And what happened? Their insulin resistance went away. Wow. So it's, it's all interlinked. We've got uh, overlapping and interlinking uh, phenomena going on. Right. Right. The, 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 this, as I said, this is a, a, another whole discussion, but clinically we can look at the, the, your lipid subfraction and, and look at your size, your LDL particles. And for people that are interested um, or at high risk, you will get a specific um, pathognomonic pattern on that lipid subfraction that indicates you have uh, higher oxidized uh, LDL. I, I wanted to also make the point that, like you mentioned, diabetes was unheard of at the turn of the century. So was ischemic heart disease. And, and Chris Kenobi has a great uh, uh, video on Low Carb Down Under that explains this, that no one could find um, coronary artery disease, atherosclerotic coronary artery disease, uh, prior to, you know, I believe it was the mid to late 1800s. Um, it was just, com it was just the, unheard of. Even in the United States in the early 20th yeah. century, it was very rare. I mean, the the American Heart Association wasn't started until the, I think, the 1930s. And Paul Dudley White, who was one of the leading, he's now called the father of American cardiology. He talked about how when he was learning to be a doctor, there were no cases of heart disease. And yeah then it got to the point where you could get rich by being a cardiologist, right? Yeah. It's, um, I mean, and that's another, again, another whole discussion, the amount of over-servicing that's happened in modern medicine, particularly around stenting, interventional cardiology, putting in <laughs> stents to open up coronary arteries when there weren't, in fact, really, there's any benefit of, of, of doing so. So it's, it's, a, it's a morass, a quagmire of, uh, of interests right. and um, financial co conflicts of interest and all, all of it is surrounding this basically evolutionarily inconsistent diet rich in linoleic acid, the toxic breakdown of, of the products, the sugar, you know, the refined carbs right. and, and all together is, is I guess sufficient to, to lead us to the, to the point where we are now. Um, I, I want to, I'm mindful of your time talking. I really want to tie it up and kind of give people and patients a real um, takeaway point and um, is there a way, is there a way that you're aware of in terms of identifying perhaps a percent the percentage of linoleic acid in someone's body in in a clinical sense? There's a uh, American lab called OmegaQuant that does a um, blood test. Right. The problem with the blood test is 
blood turnover is pretty quick, like three months. So it tells you what you've been eating the last three months. Um, it will tell you if you think I encountered one gentleman who said he was eating a low seed oil diet and showed me his omega quant test. And it said that he was eating a high seed oil diet. Um, in the longer term, the only real way to do it is a adipose tissue test. But I don't know that it's, I don't know that that's really necessary. The safe assumption is if, if you're not actually trying to avoid seed oils, you are consuming too many of them. Yes. Right? And the only way the, the Omega quant test, I think can be useful to keep you honest, right? If you think yeah. you're not eating it and you take this test and it disagrees with you, then you should listen to the test and you should start the gentleman I'm thinking of, you know, he was pursuing a near carnivore diet and he said, Oh, except I have, you know, salad and salad dressing every time I go out to eat. And I was like, well, that's a problem. That's your answer. There's your answer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, that's what got me too was eating out and salads and salad dressing. I never had, I never cooked with seed oils myself in my house because I tried it when I was a kid making stir fry and it made me feel ill. So I switched <laughs> Uh, so personally i always used olive oil or butter at home because when i tried using my mom's corn oil or whatever the heck it was she had (laughs) when i was 18 years old it made me feel badly but i never connected the dots to say gee it's in everything i shouldn't eat it until i was in my 40s yeah yeah and for for people out there it's an ubiquitous if you haven't realized from what we discussed up to now, it's a ubiquitous food additive. If you are not conscious and intentional in your in your dietary choices, you will be consuming too much. And that includes anything in a restaurant because of financial reasons. I remember going to a, a burger joint and I asked them, you know, can you can you cook your fries in beef tallow? And they went back and came to me a couple of weeks later and they like, they said beef oil is five times the cost of the canola oil that we're using to cook these fries in. So you will not find a restaurant who cooks in butter or olive oil or beef tallow. Um, it's very, very rare unless they specifically advertise there are, it. There are a few. There's one food chain in the, in the United States called Buffalo Wild Wing that supposedly cooks in beef oil, as you call it, beef tallow, but not exclusively. Mm. But, you know, I mean, yeah, you could count the exceptions on a hand, on one hand. One hand. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a safe bet. I just, I want to give credit. There are some people who are becoming more aware of this. And this is something else that we should discuss is that industry has been, there are major issues aside from health issues with using these high linoleic oils. Um, <laughs> this sounds crazy. I have a warning on my washing, on my washer dryer that says not to use it to clean clothing that has vegetable oils on it because (laughs) it might not get it all out and then they can burst into flames. Wow. No joke. I didn't notice this until recently. I posted (laughs) a picture of it to Twitter, right? But this is a real problem in the restaurant industry because- you have all these guys working around fryers in your uniforms. They take them off at the end of the day. They throw them into a bin. You put the bin into the back of a hot truck and poof, <laughs> it bursts into flames. It's also, it polymerizes, which means it forms like a lacquer all over the kitchen. It's really hard to clean. So yeah. for various reasons, 
it also goes bad. It goes rancid, right? These omega-6 fats go rancid. So industry has been trying, and those are all the same reasons that it's bad for your health, incidentally, yeah. right? Yeah. So industry for years has been trying to get what they call high oleic oils, what we should call, and what if they were honest, they would call low linole low linoleic acid oils. Yeah. So there are some options out there. There are high oleic sunflower oils, there are high oleic peanuts and high oleic peanut oils. Peanut M&Ms in the United States, at least, are apparently made with high oleic peanuts now, which is kind of cool because I love peanut M&Ms. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm working with a company that's trying to make a seed oil replacement called Zero Acre, which mm. is um, made through a fermentation process to be low linoleic acid, like I think currently it's 2% and they're trying to get it to be lower than that. 2%, you know, depending on the batch, it can vary a little bit, but yeah, 2% is about 2% is butter, right? Yeah. So that's the level you want to see, right? A lot of these high oleic seed oils are, you know, seven, eight, 10% or whatever, um, linoleic acid, which is probably higher than you really want. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a battle. It's a battle to, keep this toxic substance out of your diet. But I think the first step is actually recognizing how, um, how toxic it is. And again, I talk to patients, people know that excess consumption of sugar um, and refined carbs is bad. They don't know how bad seed oils are. And when they go out and eat in restaurants, they're, they're inadvertently, you know, doing, doing the health of, of quite a disservice. Um, I, I want to thank you, Tucker, so much for coming on and sharing all this wisdom. I think we just touched on heart disease and that in itself is such a big topic that perhaps maybe in, in, in the future we could get, get on another uh, interview and talk talk a bit more about that. Um, can you, I guess, maybe just summarize or just summarize yeah, exactly what, what, what you said over the past kind of hour and a half just to give people a really good takeaway about what seed oils are and why they should avoid them. And then perhaps after that, just let us know where we can um, find you online. Yeah. I mean, in a nutshell, the best evidence, the best scientific and medical evidence that we have for why we're having this epidemic of chronic disease is due to the excess consumption of linoleic acid, mostly via seed oils, right? And it is implicated in every chronic disease. It's implicated in autoimmune diseases, neurode neurodegenerative diseases, things that people often don't think of as being chronic diseases, but they are. Um, and it requires some diligence and there's a lack of convenience in cutting it out of your diet. But I've been doing this at this point for 13 years. And for me personally, the health benefits have just been mind boggling. Um, you know, number one being that, you know, as you mentioned, fair skinned people, I used to go out and roast in the sun in 45 minutes and turn into a very unhappy tomato. <laughs> <laughs> and now I live here in Idaho in the United States in the desert and I can go out and go camping. I mean, I haven't used sunscreen since 2016 and I start to get a little bit of a burn after six or seven hours out in the desert sun at altitude. Yeah. So that alone has just been life altering. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And then, you know, forget about 
all of my chronic disease conditions, my irritable bowel syndrome and everything else going away. My allergies have gone away. I mean, you know, we didn't even talk about autoimmune diseases, but that's yet another podcast topic. Um, yeah, definitely. The dog's going to eat me, I think. I've been doing this. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, and I've t- talked to loads and loads and loads of people who have the same effect, who have mm. seen the same effect. Yeah, um, it's, um, it's, that, it's that compelling. He's been pretty good. Yeah, yeah, he's done well. Done well. So, um, where, where, tell us where can people follow you? Where can they read your work? Where can they um, learn more about about the toxicity of seed oils? Uh, I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, at my handle is at Tucker Goodrich. I have a link to my blog there. Uh, my blog is yelling stop dot blogspot dot com. And I've been doing a lot of work, as I said, in getting some of this research out um, with Zero Acre. That's zeroacre.com. And we've got a paper on heart disease. We have a paper on cancer coming out, a paper on insulin resistance, and, you know, just a lot. They've been fabulous, not only about making a product that can hopefully help us start to solve this problem, but in making people aware of the actual medical research that is out there of why this is really a problem, right? Because I don't take anybody's word for anything. um, And I don't think you should either. So go read the literature, find out if what we're saying here is accurate, right? You'll find it is. I've been, I've had people audit my podcasts (laughs) where they went and looked up everything I said to see if they could find a reference. Um, you know, it will blow your mind and be very eye-opening. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tucker. I really appreciate your time. And um, let's get on and talk about uh, heart disease and autoimmunity and and seed oils um, on another time. That'd be great, Max. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.